0: It is Tuesday, February the 2nd, Groundhog Day in America, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're in store for, for the better part of the next hour or so, is a lively conversation featuring three Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offering their insights to what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist in the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hey, John. Hey, Cher's
1: singing. uh, I got you, babe, and I got to look at you guys again. What's going wrong here? Happy Groundhog Day.
0: Good to be with you, my friend. Second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil is, the, uh, of course, a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, have you stepped outside your cabin? If so, did you see your shadow?
2: No, I have not stepped outside my log cabin yet, but will do shortly after this is over. And I still haven't seen the movie Groundhog Day, which is kind of almost a, a blot on my conscience. But I... I, I'll get I'll get to that eventually, too.
0: I'm trusting our third good fellow has seen Groundhog Day because he is a Pennsylvanian, and that would be Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. And if I had to do Groundhog Day every
3: day, all over again every day, I would do it with you guys. You know,
0: it's really... <laughs> Always the optimist. <laughs> But gentlemen, we're going to talk about the state of cities today, and we've brought on an urban economist to offer his thoughts on this. So joining us right now, Edward Glaser. Ed Glaser is the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. He regularly teaches microeconomics theory and occasionally urban and public economics. Ed Glaser has published dozens of papers on cities' economic growth, law, and economics. In particular, his work is focused on the determinants of city growth and the role of cities as centers of idea transmission. Best of all, as John Cochran will tell you, Ed Glaser received his PhD from the University of Chicago. Ed's book, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier, is available for your perusal at Amazon.com. Ed, welcome to Goodfellows.
4: Thank you so much for having me on. But we we forgot the most important part of my history. I'm a former Arch W. Shaw National Fellow at the Hoover Institution, which uh, which I am enormously proud. So, thank
0: you, thank you for adding that. Uh, may <laughs> I ask you before we get into the conversation, who made you wear the bow tie, Cochrane or or uh, Ferguson?
4: Which <laughs> I yet. have not taken off this bow tie since 1979.
0: Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, Ed, let me begin the conversation with this question. I'm in Palo Alto, California. We're all spread around here. I think HR is in Palo Alto today. Uh, Neil is out somewhere in the world and I think John has gone to greater heights, literally in California, up in the mountains, but I'm about 30 miles south of San Francisco. And uh, to understand the history of San Francisco, uh, Ed, is to also understand cycles. Uh, there was an exodus out of San Francisco beginning in 1853 after the gold rush, an exodus in 1906 after the earthquake, an exodus uh, in the exodus of the late 1940s as housing prices took off after the war, an exodus in the 60s due to counterculture, an exodus in the late 80s when people started moving down the peninsula towards Silicon Valley, an exodus during the uh, dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. Now we see the story of San Francisco and the word exodus again. Here's the question, Ed. Is this just history repeating itself in cities like San Francisco, or is there something different going on here?
4: I think we are at an extraordinary injunction point uh, for for cities. We are we are at a point in which. Uh, Uh, You know, cities are more vulnerable than they have at any point in the 1970s. I I do not think that in any sense, the demand for face-to-face interaction is gone. I think the world is filled with billions of of people who are desperate to enjoy the company of other people and desperate to work together in the sort of very fertile face-to-face areas. But that doesn't mean that any one city has a lock on anything. And San Francisco does not either, uh, despite its extraordinary success over the last uh, 50 years. So it, it is very much a point in which every city needs to be asking itself, uh, you know, are, are you doing all you can to hold on to your talent, to hold on to your, your uh, uh, the future of your businesses, the future of, of your economy? But I don't think that the city itself is going to disappear anytime soon.
0: Okay, fair point, gentlemen.
1: Ed, one of the many things I've learned from you over the years is there's a third function of cities. And the first is uh, agglomeration and production that goes with amenities. So I think both are true, say, in New York, people go there because they they have to, because that's where they're very productive, working with other people. Uh, Rich millionaires go there because they love the restaurants. Um, Both of those seem in uh, great danger right now, especially in San Francisco, uh, maybe New York as well. Uh, the third function of cities is, uh, is decay. Uh, they become a place of, uh, of um, capital, fixed capital stock that you can live in uh, cheaply if you're on a government check. And that seems like some of the danger of uh, where you go if you overregulate, if there's too many rent seekers uh, at the trough and so forth. Um, and maybe you'd like to tell us a little more about um, the, the cycle of decay, the dangers of becoming the next Detroit Uh, the possibility for uh, everyone to pick up and move to Austin.
4: Thanks. Thanks, John. And that's that's exactly right. I mean, the cities have this fixed capital stock that means that they, you know, last for a long time. And that's one of the reasons why that observation is really important is that San Francisco, even in the you know, even if this is a huge shock, is unlikely to turn into empty office towers. Right. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is prices drop a lot before you start having everything empty out. And so you don't have an immediate reduction. What you have is sort of year by year, decade by decade. You have the slow grind of a sort of a, a city slowly coming apart. In places that start closer to the point, which boy, you know, landlords start saying, "Boy, if rents drop twenty percent, we're really going to stop, you know, stop this." You know, cities in the in the central U.S., places where uh, rents are more like twenty bucks a square foot than eighty bucks a square foot. Uh, those places really you could see vacancies. Um, the fear I think that John also raised is one in which decline compounds itself. So a, a city receives an adverse economic shock. Uh, the city responds by uh, you know, raising taxes. It doesn't particularly try to hold on to its talent. Uh, more skilled businesses leave. Uh, the city cuts back on public services. Crime rates go up. More skilled cities, citizens leave. That is very much sort of the story that we felt in the 60s and 70s, many cities. And, you know, that's very much what we want to make sure does not happen in as many places as possible. Um, But these sort of cycles happen over and over, as you said, Bill, to start this up, but successful cities manage to reinvent themselves, as indeed San Francisco has. And that requires that they sort of mediate the downside of the cycle and stop the sort of, you know, uh, stop the sort of perpetual decline feeds on decline
2: feel. One of the questions we're grappling with regularly on Goodfellas is the impact of COVID-19 and a hypothesis that's got a lot of journalistic traction is that COVID-19 is uh, a unique uh, death blow to some cities at least uh, because it's made possible a new pattern of work and uh, many of us are simply not going to go back. Uh, to the old ways uh, that required us to be uh, cramped in apartments in uh, in New York City. So I think it's worth pondering a little bit whether there's something special about 2020 uh, that is going to make it harder for, for San Francisco to pull itself out of what looks to me, uh, as somebody who's observed the city now for nigh on 20 years, like a pretty steady decline, The the pandemic's a big shock, and I'm interested in, in how far cities can, can recover from these very unusual shocks like pandemics. As a historian, I'm inclined to think that they generally do, and that plagues far worse than COVID-19 did not kill off the great cities uh, of Europe. Uh, So if I was to take a kind of first cut at this question, it would be, no, you're probably exaggerating the impact of the pandemic. It's pretty hard to kill a city. I mean, think of Naples, uh, a a city regularly over the centuries uh, disrupted by volcanic eruptions, Uh, but people still flock back there. And I'm struck by the speed with which, after a major disaster, cities refill, even if it's as bad as as a volcanic eruption. What's, so, what's your take on that, Ed?
1: I just want to add to the question. There's, there's also the effects of the U.S. Air Force, which did in some cities in uh, in the middle of the last century, and people flocked back. But you, you mentioned this question of face-to-face interaction. So really the issue is not going to be COVID. I think we all see cities can come back from that as they have come back from plagues. The question is Zoom. <laughs> to what extent does the future require that face-to-face interact and how much does it require? San Francisco was already the city of the startup, but not the city of production. Uh, only stuff that absolutely needed that face-to-face floating workforce. The minute you're kind of a business and you're there for 20 years and you get the gold watch, boom, off we go over the Sierra to where the taxes are lower. Uh, so how, just how much will have to be done in that uh, now very expensive face-to-face agglomeration?
4: So there, there are two questions here, and I want, to, I want to sort of respond to both of them. One of which is: Is Zoom the shadow of Alvin Toffler? The rise of telecommuting? You know, for my you know for my entire life, in some sense, as as an academic, I've lived under the shadow of Toffler's prediction that the rise of electronic top technology would move us all to these uh, electronic cottages, and we would just zoom it in. And for forty years after he wrote the Third Wave, he's been completely wrong. Right. So let's be let's be clear on this. I mean, he got the whole thing uh, backwards in part because he, he, he took a single comparative static, a single effect, which was this would increase our ability to dial it in, but didn't look at everything else that would change along with a more technology-intensive, globalized world, the fact that we became much more collaborative, the fact that the world became more complicated and in a more complicated world, you know, it's easier for ideas to get lost in translation, which makes it more valuable to be face-to-face. The incredible rise in the returns to skill, which have happened partially as a result of, of new technologies, partially as a result of globalization. And we are a social species that gets smart about around being around other smart people. I know this more than from any data. I know this from the experiences I had when I was 21, sitting around John Cochran in the University of Chicago, right? So this is a, this is sort of a, a huge part of what makes us human is our ability to, to learn from one another. And I think looking forward today in 2021, um, there's no question that many forms of work will change, but we we still have this fundamental thing that you know for highly creative, highly interactive tasks, proximity is very valuable. Even more so, it is very hard to sort of get younger workers or for that matter, younger students engaged with the enterprise and part of the team if you're not doing it face-to-face. I don't know how many of you have had this experience with sort of people who you've been advising for years, this works, Zoom is great. Like old friends, it's totally fine, right? But if you ask me to inspire a bunch of 19 year olds to like get excited about mathematical economics over Zoom, it's much, much harder. And we see this in the burning glass data where if you split up occupations between those occupations that can be done remotely and those occupations that need to be done face-to-face, the face-to-face occupations Plummeted post COVID, okay. Both uh, employment and job openings on Burning Glass, and then both of them came back. Okay, both came back by the fall. Um, the remote jobs employment was steady. Burning Glass postings collapsed, and they've stayed collapsed. So they aren't hiring new workers, right? So Microsoft comes up with these reports that says that its its programmers are just as productive post-Zoom as they were pre-Zoom, mm-hmm. but overall burning glass hires in, for programmers are down by something like a third, which, which is suggestive of the view that you can take the old workers, you can ride on the relationships that are already built, but you're not going to start something from scratch doing this. So uh, again, I think that this suggests that face-to-face working isn't really all that all that gone, but are plenty of startups going to start thinking, well, you know, I can deal with my venture capitalists from Boulder? I can deal with them from Vail, I can deal with them from Bozeman, Montana, and it's a quarter of the price. So maybe I just want to take the whole team and take them there. That seems to be the more realistic approach than that, you know, the startups of the future are gonna consist of, of five 25-year-olds all living in their apartments and zooming it in. That just doesn't seem remotely plausible to me for the for the sort of dynamic information-intensive economy of of the future. And hey, it's also for many of Sorry, well, I was going
1: I want to bring to get... HR in on this. On uh, yes. HR, I, I guess nobody runs boot camp on Zoom.
3: <laughs> well, you know, or or rugby teams, right? I mean, any, anything that that requires teamwork, and and uh, and I think building a team, as Ed says, is very difficult to do remotely because that that has a psychological, it has an emotional dimension to it. It has, in the, in the case of the Army, an ethical dimension as you as you create expectations of one another and it strikes me and you mentioned the tofflers you know they wrote, they wrote the third Wave, but they also wrote uh war and anti-war and they were dead wrong about future of war as well and, and and i think the reason that they were wrong is they emphasized in both books they emphasized change over continuity and as my fellow historian you know first and would agree i think is that is that we have to keep mindful of continuities in the human experience or, or else we're bound to make Uh, wrong decisions, right? The first step in making a projection of the future, I think is understanding how the past produced the present. And whereas Carl Becker said, that anticipation of future and memory of past have to walk hand in hand in a happy way. So I, I wondered if you could summarize for us what you see as continuities in the city. I think you've mentioned some of these already and certainly having your scholarship in terms of our needs to be together, to be in a community. Uh, and and what are the changes? I and mean, I think we're talking about the technological changes as well. And Ed, in context of that, have you been following the line the Saudi Arabian project or Neom uh, the, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman's you know, vision of a future city that argues that a different kind of city is necessary because of changes in technology? But but really, the overall question is: How, how do you see continuity and change in cities?
4: It, it's a great question and, and I'm gonna take it in a slightly, I'm gonna take it to cycle back to, to Neil's comment on the sort of long arc of plagues and cities because I, I think there really, is, there really are differences and um, we can have different interpretations about 430 uh, BC or 541 CE, which are the sort of two classic plagues. So the first is Thucydides and the plague of Athens, possibly killing off about a quarter of the Athenian population. Certainly, uh, you know, casting down on Pericles' strategy of waiting within the walls of Athens and harassing uh, the Peloponnesian uh, coast by fleet. Uh, you know, whether or not we think this was absolutely crucial or, you know, the, the Athenian fleet ultimately uh, perished because of Alcibiades' uh, hubris in attacking uh, Sicily is unclear, but it certainly was deeply damaging to that city that had been in some sense the brightest city of the Mediterranean world during his period. 541. Right, this is plague of Constantinople, first appearance of Yersinia pestis on uh, uh, European shores, right? Uh, Whatever hope you had uh, that Justinian and Belisarius were gonna reimpose the Pax Romana on the Mediterranean world, that hope vanished when uh, the Black Plague showed up. So I agree strongly with Neil that post 1350, cities have been unbelievably resilient in part because the, the seven centuries that followed Right, the Black Death's appearance on Constantinople, were in some sense the creation of a much more resilient uh, European uh, world. Part of that was, in fact, defensive military, right? A, instead of a military that was geared towards offense, it was a military that was geared around walls that could be defended. And if you lost a 30 year population, you could still defend those walls. Um, but partially it was also smaller polities, polities that were less prone to sort of immediately collapse when there was the disorder of this. And, of course, Neil is particularly right that in the 19th century, when plagues like cholera and yellow fever, which were far deadlier than, you know, COVID by any stretch of the imagination, you know, Paris, London, New York, they brushed those things off and they use them as opportunities to come together and actually rebuild their cities to make them stronger. One final point that I think comes out of this, and this comes out of the work of Matt Kahn and others on how natural disasters impact things. In some sense, all natural disasters are mediated by the strength of civil society when they're hit. Right? So earthquake hits Haiti, larger earthquake hits Chile. Chile, you know, death toll is minor. Haiti, it's a, it's a humanitarian disaster. Right, In some sense, the weakness of, the, of Justinian and Rome tells you why it, that became such a disaster, uh, if, if, if that's clear. And then you've got to ask yourself, where is, where is America in 2021? Are we, are we as resilient as New York was in 1849? Or are we somewhere that's less resilient than that? Or New York in 2001 when we were hit by the Twin Towers? But this is a great point,
2: Ed, which is the point that ultimately a disaster is only as disastrous as uh, the institutions, the politics uh, make it. And that's what makes me concerned for San Francisco and to an extent New York, because when one contemplates the way San Francisco has been run as a city in recent years, it's almost as if they have a death wish. I'm still reeling at the thought that the people running public schools in the city thought it was worthwhile to rename about 40 of them because they had highly offensive names like Abraham Lincoln attached to them. Crazy people run San Francisco. They appear wholly uninterested in providing the kind of public services like housing and education that would make people want to live in the city. 20 years ago, it was a pretty attractive city to my untrained uh, eye. I hardly ever go there. When I moved from Harvard to Stanford, I assumed I'd go there often. A few visits quickly taught me that the place had become really quite uh, odious. And I think that's a failure of public policy that would have killed San Francisco even if COVID-19 had never struck. So it's, it's really about how people run cities, not about which disasters strike them, don't you think?
4: Well, I mean, so, Yes, how people run the cities are important, but um, and the city as long as any city that can command the kind of real estate prices that San Francisco commands can't be called a, a complete, a, a complete, you know, it may be a complete public public disaster, but it's not a failed city yet, right? A, a city where condos go for multiple millions of dollars is a city that still is appealing to somebody, um, whether or not it's appealing to, to you or not. Now, in some sense, that very appeal is what enabled the government of San Francisco to act in a way that was not targeted uh, towards, towards uh, the services that you, that you value. And in some sense, that's what's happened in many of America's most successful coastal cities over the past 20 years. The, the New York of the 1970s was a city where as you know, its giant garment industry had disappeared in a short number of years, hundreds of thousands of jobs disappearing uh, because of globalization uh, and uh, the deindustrialization. Um, a city that tried to run a local welfare state and then found when it taxed the rich and when it taxed businesses, they just picked up and left, right? It found itself, right? Asking, going to the federal government, having Ford famously, he didn't literally say Ford the city dropped dead, but the, the Daily News got the spirit of it right. Um, and the city really had to reinvent itself. It had to realize that it didn't have a blank check. And city after city in the US came to that realization in the 1970s. And we had really an arc from the sort of progressive dreamer of the 1960s to the city manager mayor, be they you know a Mike Bloomberg or a Tom Menino. These were sort of pragmatic people who understood that there's no democratic or Republican way to clean up the trash or deal, deal with the snow. And so that was sort of the consensus as of 2001. And the past 20 years have been an enormously rich set of years for cities. And they've responded by saying, well, you know, we can do whatever we want. We don't need to worry about businesses or rich people where San Francisco will always be that way. And now I think the question is, how many election cycles does it take for San Francisco and New York to realize that they need to come back to the center and focus on core city services? Let me
1: count. So yeah, I, I think please. it's harder harder than you think. So first of all, you might want to use past tense on all those prices because <laughs> they are plummeting. <laughs> right, we don't actually right, Fair enough. Um, a great underreported in the National News story is the explosion of violent crime right now, uh, nonviolent crime and violent crime. Carjackings in Chicago are up 150%. Um, murders are skyrocketing. Uh, and part of that is the police are kind of taking a little bit of vacation, and prosecutors are just not prosecuting uh, shoplifting, the result being that uh, stores are closing right and left, uh, you know, crime is one of those things where it really hits you, you, can, rich people can buy themselves public schools, but you can't buy your way out of crime. Uh, then the, uh, you know, part of the loop is, yes, there's agglomeration, it's wonderful to be productive here, but there's also the great amenities, well, of course, the businesses are all, uh, you know, that kind of uh, shoplifting crime, the businesses all go, the people all go, uh, and San Francisco compounds it with, uh, with a wave of homeless. San Francisco spends $330,000 per homeless person on homeless services uh, to not much effect other than to increase the uh, number of, of mostly mentally ill and drug addicted people wandering around the streets. Somehow it doesn't have the money for public toilets even. Um, that once you get over the, over the crime, in, into the crime part. I mean, I we, I lived on the South side of Chicago in the 1970s. It took a long time to convince people to come back. That seems like kind of a death knell for the cities that have that in part because now we just meant, you mentioned sort of politicians with a general, let's get the city going. <clears throat> but politicians have a voter base and once the rich people and the business people move out, their voter base is the people who are there now who are not particularly interested. They, they don't like crime. Um, and they don't necessarily like uh, progressive nostrums, but they don't like gentrification. They don't like rich people moving back in. Uh, and this has been quite clear in Chicago, where local Oldham and say, no, I don't want business and rich people moving in because my voters are the voters who are the ones who are there now and uh, they won't be there anymore. So, who represents the potential that ought to be there that could move in?
2: Is there an answer to this question in migration because it seems to me what makes the United States a dynamic and successful country is partly the size and decentralization uh, of of the system and what one thing that I remember striking me when I was writing a book about American decline called Colossus was the decline of mobility between cities and and between states, and my hope at the moment is that Uh, The shock of the pandemic is going to increase mobility back to its kind of normal level. And once you get that kind of mobility, the competition forces the bad cities uh, to reform themselves or be Detroit. Could we see an increase Uh, or a return to normal of uh, cross-state line migration, city-to-city migration. I I think we're seeing it already, actually. I mean, the standard move at the moment is San Francisco to Austin, Texas, and the other one is New York to name a city in Florida. Uh, So, I mean, my guess is that the best discipline for the bad cities is people moving to the good ones. And in the United States, that's really easy to do.
4: So, so Neil is taking my side on this. So there's a clear view between John and myself, and that I am somewhat op- more optimistic that cities will react soon enough, or at least a good number of cities will react soon enough to the threat of outmigration that they won't collapse entirely. But let me let me directly, and you know, it's exactly through the process Neil was talking about, right? That we have this possibility of moving. Zoom has made businesses and people more mobile. Austin is more appealing than it's ever been. San Francisco needs to pay attention to it, or it will lose. So let me let me. Uh, let me, let me address two issues that John has raised, both of which are quite serious. One of which is crime moves quickly. And that is right. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not at a place that we were in 1985 or 1989, in which we think that safe streets are an absolutely sine qua non of every city, right? This is not something where current political discourse has gone. And that's a problem. Uh, because in fact, in, there is no way for this, for the city to come back if it doesn't Enable its its amenities, its restaurants, its parks to be used, and that actually requires whatever one thinks about, you know, stop and frisk or the other issues around uh, race and policing, which I think of as actually quite serious serious issues. Um, they need to be handled at the same time you keep safety right? And that actually requires not defunding the police, almost assuredly, if you're going to ask more of your police in terms of respect, and also ask them to prevent crime, you're going to actually have to spend more on them, not less. So that's, that's sort of one, one thing that I think is absolutely critical on this. Um, and, you know, how quickly this will happen, I will tell you that I have emerged out of the 90s and 2000s, fairly optimistic relative to where where we were in the 1980s about how quickly the police can actually stop crime. We've learned a lot about about how effective policing can be, and things feel less dire in terms of the sort of complete helplessness that we felt in 1985 about like this can never never end the second point which i think is a a, you know I'll, i'll just tell a story about this so john raised the sort of political economy issue of what happens if basically a mayor is elected by a constituency that doesn't care about businesses that doesn't care about rich people that thinks gentrification is nothing but nothing but evil and thinks it's great now the story that that i i call this the curly effect Named after the Boston mayor, James Michael Curley, who famously in 1916, when a British recruiting uh, colonel, I think, came and asked if it was okay that he recruit Bostonians of British descent to fight in the Great War. Um, he came to Mayor Curley and asked him. Now, Mayor Curley was was an Irish-American uh, mayor who was deeply fond of twisting the lion's tail. And he responded to him, go ahead, take every damn one of them was his actual line. Uh, <laughs> and, and by this, of course, he meant that, you know, not a single one of them were going to vote for him. He poor Irish constituents you know his probability of being elected was was increased and that is a worrisome possibility as John raised that is that is a world in which the center doesn't rule in which there's not so, sort of some sense the city actually needs its economic base and I don't see that yet for you know I believe that sort of we will get back to that uh in New York and San Francisco and that the competition will will, will win out but you know that is a very unfortunate outcome if it does occur. Hey
3: Ed you know we've talked we've talked about uh we've talked about education and public safety, and I'd like to just add, how about equality of opportunity, which I think are re- related to both of those. What do you think have been the worst, uh, the worst uh, policies uh, that, that have discouraged really growth in, in cities and, and exacerbated problems associated with poor education, uh, you know, lack of lack of public safety and increased crime? And inequality of opportunity, and what are some of the best policy solutions that you've seen that have invigorated cities and and addressed those interconnected uh, issues and 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 challenges?
4: It's a great question, and one of the things that the data that Raj Chetty and Nathan Hendren and John Friedman have made made uh, clear is that um, while cities are great places for productivity, they're not great places for opportunity of the poor. So if you come to a city as a, an adult, typically you do experience faster wage growth. You do, uh, you know. Uh, Experience uh, significant income increases, uh, but cities, particularly dense urban cores, look quite bad uh, for kids born in the in the bottom quartile of, of the population uh, of the income of, the, of their parents. Um, and uh, that's this is for a cohort born around seventy eight to eighty three. So that's their cohort. So it's a particular cohort. But it's really it's really shocking. Now, in terms of what public policies make that happen, or even why that is, it's hard to know. I mean. One part of it is probably the, the very isolation of the lives of the urban poor for the kids. So if you are an urban, you know, if you're a poor adult, you're going to a job that's probably filled with a lot of people who are, you know, richer than you or better educated than you. You're part of an integrated world. If you're a poor kid, you often will live in a housing project, a public housing project, perhaps, that is, you know, highly segregated and then go to a school that is deeply isolated and underperforming. Um, the urban schools are, of course, a huge issue. You see a huge break, unsurprisingly, in terms of upward mobility, right at the bo- boundary of the urban school district. Um, it is amazing, and in fact, I often contrast these stories that the, the crime really, I mean, police, police departments changed rapidly and crime really fell quickly in cities. The project of urban school reform has been unbelievably painful and slow. And I, you know, like many people who are gonna be listening to this call, I have a deep fondness for some form of competition in this market. I think right now, given the difficulties of doing anything within the public schools, I like the idea of sort of wraparound vocational training that could be completely competitively sourced and done outside of the side of the unions. Um, uh, and then uh, but you know schools are very very hard the other low hanging fruit that really should be a priority post covid is rethinking the business permitting uh, of, of uh, you know, new firms, both in cities and in states with things like occupational licensing. It is an outrage in this country that we regulate the entrepreneurship of the poor so much more strictly that we entre- than we regulate the entrepreneurship of the rich. If you want to start your internet phenomenon in your Harvard College dorm, right, you, ha- you will have to have a billion users before any regulators notice you. If you want to start your small grocery store that met- sells milk products five blocks away, you have 15 permits to go through to get it, right? That is outrageous. And that is, that is something that, you know, we, we are desperately hundred thousand restaurants have closed or eating and drinking places have closed this year uh because of covid we're going to need to start new restaurants and this is exactly the time to think about things like one-stop permitting and taking a cost benefit analysis hatchet to the regulations that exist uh, on on the books
2: this is music to all our ears uh, ed thank you uh so nice to hear that uh message coming from harvard uh but here's um here's a new direction I want to take this conversation in. I I can see two futures for cities. Uh, One is the kind of cyberpunk city uh, that you could read about in science fiction in the 1980s and 1990s, the kind of snow crash, San Francisco or LA, which is public uh, squalor, private affluence, uh, a kind of Uh, wasteland, uh, anarchic wasteland, uh, uh, techno-enabled but basically without law and order. The other city of the future is, I'll just call it the Chinese Panopticon. The much larger cities of East Asia, and let's remember that the Asian cities are much larger than our Western cities, uh, are gradually going to conform to the smart city model uh, which is being pioneered in some Chinese cities at a surveillance city uh, in which there is absolutely no disorder uh, because every citizen is under constant uh, surveillance and a social credit system can even prevent you using public transport if you're a naughty person. I think we should talk a little bit about these cities of the future because it seems to me that the more cyberpunk Western cities become, Uh, the more attractive uh, the Asian panopticon becomes. And it's interesting that the Chinese are already able to export uh, their facial recognition technology and all the associated artificial intelligence to a very large number of countries around the world. So which of these cities do you think will predominate 20 or 30 years from now? Will we be living in cyberpunk, uh, Blade Runner-type cities, or will we find ourselves, in fact, in the panopticon?
4: I, I cannot tell you my, how much I hope, Neil, we get neither of those <laughs> two uh, delightful options that have been offered from us. And I, I, let me let me let me take my way of of, of responding to this, which is I think there is no question that in 2021, many of us think that we need to have a more effective uh, executive branch within governments, state local, federal, right, that our, our government failed on responding to, uh, to, to COVID in many ways, at many levels. Our vaccine rollout right now is currently not feeling like a model of, of uh, competence. Um, we probably even need some cross-national strength that looks more like a NATO for health than it does the current WHO. So something that is more muscular and empowered that way. Uh, John's comment about crime at the local level, crime doesn't go away by singing uh, nice songs. Crime requires a strong functioning city government to actually handle that, which is your panopticon. That, that's your That's your strong government. Uh, the problem of course is that uh, that can be terrifyingly abused. I mean, as a, there's a line that I'm fond of using with my undergraduates, which is my my father grew up in Hitler's Germany, and my grandfather grew up in the Czar's Russia, and I have my doubts about the benevolence of government. Um, and uh, that that um, you know that that means that somehow or other, and this is why you know uh, the the sort of wisdom of, of Hoover is, is so vital. Uh, we need to understand how to expand our state without turning ourselves into a police state. We need to have a world in which we manage to do a better job on closing international borders when uh, a new pandemic comes up, without immediately, uh, you know, turning ourselves into into a a state that's con- that's too controlled at the center, and that is a very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult path to find, but it's fundamentally the path that you know the Federalist Papers tried to achieve. I mean, that was Alexander Hamilton's goal, was to try and create a state that was powerful enough to protect its citizens and to enable trade and to enable people to have the freedom to find their own futures and at the same time to restrict itself. So I don't know exactly how to get there, but I know that we need a stronger state than we currently have to avoid the, the, the cyberpunk vision, but I know we need to have far more controls on the state than in your Panopticon vision.
1: Um, I want to ask, uh, I want to challenge a little bit your, your view of cities, uh, offer a third version to Neil's version, and then maybe uh, HR who's been in cities like Baghdad can tell us a little bit about different kinds of cities too. Uh, the vision you offered was that, that cities are back because of uh, the great agglomerations of tech and, and so forth, which I think is a little bit uh, narrow from our experience of, of you know living in Manhattan or in, in San Francisco. Um, 99% of the people in the world do live in cities, but they live in cities where the, uh, you know, what they do is not uh, sit around and discuss the latest way to run AI software or to start a new company. They do very traditional things. And it's interesting, they do them in cities. Uh, We mentioned historically. So in the recent past, we had cities because you needed walls. (laughs) And everybody, you know, the the cuteness of of Europe is because everybody, walls were expensive. We had to live close to each other. Then I think in the 1900s, we lived in cities because the provision of of public goods was was geographically concentrated, you know, things like water and so forth. And, And also you needed person to person exchange. But um, what we saw in the US from the 1950s to the 1970s was in fact sort of the end of cities. There was a natural force towards suburbanization. We had transportation, we had a uh, certain amount of commuting. Um, You go to places like China where there's, yeah, lots of cities, but it's it's not about the great agglomerations of intellectual uh, exchange. It's about a factory and it's really cheap to put up apartments. Uh, so that's a different kind of say I don't think, you know, the U.S. is at a different level. Uh, you go to Baghdad, that's still a city, although uh, we're not really uh, thinking about, um, it, that, that's not, not about developing new software. But in the American context, is it not possible that the early 2000s were a, a little bit of a blip where um, the young tech people and finance people went back to cities, half for agglomeration, half for the amenities that they temporarily had but that the natural forces are towards suburbanization uh, and those forces would continue.
4: So uh, there's a question as to what do you actually uh, what do you actually call suburbs? So uh, you know for economists, right we define cities as the absence of physical space between people, the absence of physical space between economic actors. And so a place like Palo Alto is not necessarily a classic city, but there's an awful lot of density of talent that's close to one another in in those areas, and it's it's enabled by cars rather than by uh, by walking. So I I think it is clear over the past 20, 30 years that the sort of lower density parts of the U.S. have hollowed out relative to the higher density parts of the U.S., Uh, particularly actually the second decile in density, which which includes places that would look more suburban to you than places that that look more urban. Um, It's harder in the US context to be entirely confident about where we're going relative to car-based versus downtown stuff. But even in the past 20 years, even in this great golden time for New York and San Francisco, the population growth was much heavier in the car-oriented suburbs than it was in the urban cores. So even during that time period, you have a reasonable case for that. Nonetheless, I think there's a fair argument that our great urban agglomerations were still the economic heart of, of our world, even if they were people driving to get to the offices to, to connect with one another. And that's even more so in the developing world. One thing where I do want to push back on the sort of China view is, you know you've been to Shenzhen, you've been to Shanghai, right? These are places with a lot of knowledge and a lot of knowledge that's moving quickly over over places. So I I don't think that our view of sort of China as a smokestack, you know, 19th century area, albeit there are lots of Chinese cities that are built on, you know, overly ambitious local government leaders pumping up the, the construction machine. But there are, in the most successful Chinese cities, these are places that are as information and knowledge intensive as anything we have anywhere else in the world.
0: Let's bring an HR
2: first. Neil, do you want to fact check your colleague? I, I need to because I think yeah. I heard you say, John, that 99% of people lived in cities, and you must have known as you were saying it that that, <laughs> that was nonsense. <laughs> no, th- th- and we <laughs> only recently crossed globally the 50, 50% mark. I 2007, the latest, right?
4: 2007 the latest was that percentage
2: happening? is 56% of the world's population is urban. But half of them are living in in towns with less than 500,000 inhabitants, which barely qualifies as a city. So I just wanted to point out, because as the representative on the show of rural life, because I actually hate cities and I like living far from the madding crowd where true, clear thought can be pursued without the distractions of internet cafes and all the other rubbish, Uh, a lot of people still live in the country. And I want to break a lance for the idiocy of rural life because it's not actually that idiotic. And to make the point that actually these arguments about collaboration, proximity, the need to be in a city, I think they're much less compelling thanks to the internet, not just Zoom, but all that is now possible. I've been almost a year now in the middle of bloody nowhere. And I don't think I've Suffered any significant intellectual deterioration. Correct me if I'm wrong, dear colleagues, because you've had a weekly opportunity to check on it. But I I wonder, I just wonder if, and here I'm going to go out on a limb, if COVID-19 is just the wake-up call and the first of multiple pandemics, if we've actually reached a point of excessive uh, proximity and density of population as a species, maybe this is just the beginning of the end for the urban age. And we'll look back and say 56% of the world in cities was too high. Uh, it, it was actually dangerous to have us all crowded together in these megalopolises where the probability of infection was actually high, where novel pathogens were highly likely to spread rapidly. You might have read Jeffrey West's amazing book, Scale. Uh, You know, Jeffrey argues that uh, the thing about cities is you get increasing returns to scale, both of good things and of bad things, creativity uh, and drug abuse. Uh, So I, I wonder if there isn't an opportunity here to reclaim rural life. And that we may actually, as a species, have to do that for the sake of our own survival.
1: That would go against all of history. Because as you know, the death rate in cities was (laughs) much, much higher. Well, you know, we did, cities came back, as you said, after after the plague, where two thirds of the people died. I hope I got but, that number right. But John, right. actually, and,
2: this uh, is my point. We never had in all of history this many people, and we certainly never had this well, larger proportion of the population.
4: But uh, I'm, I'm on I'm on John's side, but let me just let me just make one thing. If, sitting in 541 you would not actually say it went all against all of history, right? If you were, if John could have made that comment in 541 and said, oh my goodness, you know, Europe is never gonna become rural again, you know, this urban civilization that we've had for the last nine centuries will continue. And yet, you know, the the plague that struck Justinian was followed by eight centuries of a more rural uh, Europe and a Europe that really did go backwards. It, well, it that is, was a
1: collapse of civilization, though, which is uh, that's, something that's that could right to happen. And that's and right. I think it, that's, it right. I think that's close to Neil's vision. Yeah, I I that's
4: agree. the Neil's vision. <laughs> is is and not just a bunch of things with like one percent mortality. We need a bunch of plagues to get to Neil's vision, which has not just the level of communicableness of a of a, of a COVID-19, but also a level of mortality that's much higher, right? Because this is just too. I mean, you know, to, to the extent the amazing work that Anup Malani has been doing, uh, serological work in, in Mumbai slums, right? gives us that more than 50% of Mumbai slum residents had, had been exposed to the disease by the end of July, right? And yet the mortality rates were tiny. Young population, low levels of obesity. You know, this will do nothing to the urbanization of the poor world if this is what it looks like. Let's, this
0: let's is get, like a, let's get uh, HR back in the conversation. Well, and, uh, you, know, <laughs> you should know the good general is a contradiction in terms. He's an optimist, and he's from Philadelphia.
1: <laughs> well, HR also is from Baghdad. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious about this. We, I think, we're taking a very U.S. centric view, which is fine. Our yeah. audience is U.S. But most people in the world live in in cities like Rio or Baghdad, where you know the crime levels are outrageous compared to what we have now. Now you, and they're not brought there to, to write computer programs. Uh, that seems to be a model that in that part of the world is at least they're still living in cities. And and you also know something about trying to get the peace in in cities like that.
3: Well, this goes to this goes to uh, to Neil's point on on how resilient our cities and. I think they're quite resilient. And I'll tell you why. But first of all, I'd like to say, you know, it kind of hurts my feelings a little bit that you know we miss you a lot. Apparently, you don't miss <laughs> us as much as we miss you. But but the uh, but I do think there is that, that that psychological, emotional, the social draw of cities. I think I've seen it. Right? I've seen I've seen Kabul with the life choked out of it by the Taliban uh, when we went in there in two thousand one. I saw it with the time. I got to see it in two thousand three. As it was coming back to life, a city that had been reduced in population to five hundred thousand, right? It had like maybe two phones uh, in, in the city. People were you know, people were fearful, you know, of, of doing, stepping out of line in any way, lest lest they uh, they they wind up in the soccer stadium for the mass execution. And so that city now is three million people. It's thriving. It's a bustling city. And so it, what changed? Hey, just security changed, right? Just getting rid of the Taliban, and people came back naturally in in a very rapid way. Now, you know, a lot of the land is still informal uh, in, in the city. It it grew in kind of a hodgepodge, disorganized, crazy way, but it came back. And then we, I saw the same dynamic in in Baghdad as well. I was there, you know, of course, during the during the really terrible. Uh, period of the Civil War, when violence was at its highest and mass murder attacks, multiple mass murder attacks were occurring. And you see the effect as communities draw in on themselves. And you, you move through these empty streets and you think, well, the city must be empty, but it's really not empty. It's just everyone has gone inside of their homes and is in hiding, essentially. Any common areas, marketplaces are empty. You know, no restaurants open. But when you reestablish security, it, it just comes back. Uh, we, we did this, we, we had a, a major operation in microcosm in a, in a city called Talafur, uh in Nineveh province. Again, the life had been choked out of the city by, by Al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, and a, a sectarian civil war that was going on in microcosm uh, within, within the cities. Again, the communities had fallen in on themselves. You know, the hospital was not a place where they cared for people, but a place where Al-Qaeda murdered people. Uh, and, and, um, and so uh, the, all the schools were closed for over a year. And once we conducted a major offensive with, with courageous Iraqi uh, comrades there, we were able to lift that pall of fear off the city. And what we had done is before the operation, we planned for a restoration of basic services, all of which had been impossible because of the violence in the city. You know, we had the transformers and the lines ready to go. There was a big hydroelectric uh, dam uh, by, close by there as well. But we also planned for the reopening of the, of the, of the schools and contractors with the Iraqi government to, to refurbish the schools and to have the teachers lined up and trained remotely in Mosul and the educa- and the educational materials and so forth. So we took a systems approach to all of this planning and had it all ready to go and resourced. so once al Qaeda was defeated, the city just came back to life so quickly, reconstruction of police stations and retraining of police, introducing them back in the communities. Now of course this is all reversible, right? As we saw with the rise of ISIS, um, but but it was it was it was amazing to go back there, uh, you know, a year later, and just to, to walk around with you know with no body armor with my with my uh, with my Iraqi friends. Of course, I would say at the top of the list was competent leadership, which we've talked we've talked about as well. And leadership that is trusted across the various communities in that city. The mayor uh, uh, Najem Abed Abdullah Al Jabouri, who is now the governor of Nineveh Province, um, was was a, is a phenomenal human being. You know, who brought these communities who had been shooting at each other together. Once once the, the extremists were gone, you know, he he mediated between these communities and they worked together. You know, for the for their common future. Everybody has a certain basic humanity in, in, in common. So, I mean, that's my experience is cities are extraordinarily resilient and, and, uh, and, and especially in places that have this, you know, this geographic draw like Baghdad at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, for example. And what, but what you need, and I saw, because I, I saw its it stark absence right? is, is leadership is, is secu- and security.
4: I couldn't agree with you more, General, uh, that you need both to sort of the the combination of strong, competent leadership that is trusted by a wide set of people. Um, Neil's vision of perpetual pandemic is uh, is incredibly dark. It is, I guess, possible. But I want to highlight that that isn't just catastrophic for America's cities. One fifth of the American labor force, right, employed labor force prior to this were in worked in leisure, hospitality and retail trade right? Those were jobs that provided a safe haven when automation caused the factory jobs to go away. Those jobs disappear in a heartbeat when a face is a source of peril rather than a source of pleasure. And so I cannot imagine a world in which America provides employment for its less skilled workers that does not have the capacity of an urban service face-to-face economy. So I think for that reason, as for many others, we really need to invest enough to make sure that our cities become safe again. And I think that very much does require the sort of strong, capable leadership that takes care of the whole city that you were describing, General.
1: And and there are two biological futures. I, I share some of Neil's worries <clears throat> that, uh, you know, evolution takes a look around us. So waterborne diseases aren't doing so well, but boy, respiratory ones there, we, we've given evolution a, a chance there. Uh, so we could be the era, every globalization era has, has had pandemics. And um, contrary to my own previous uh, comments, we're much more risk averse than we used to be. Uh, we used to put up with, you know, 1918 flu. Yeah, right, people are dying on the streets, get back to work. Uh, now, uh, you know, much lower death rates and we shut down the whole economy. So we are in some sense uh, more, more susceptible to it. The other way is, uh, you know, we've seen the scientific miracle, mRNA vaccines may be so damn good and, and we you know, if in a weekend we can stop any bug and next time around not have the FDA and the CDC in the way, uh, we might have actually conquered those and, and be towards a much more bug free future. So I'd say I, both possibilities are there and it'll be interesting to see what the biology does to us.
2: My money is on the antibiotic resistance bubonic and pneumonic plague. <laughs> uh, to send us right back to the 1340s, and do not laugh, gentlemen. That is all too possible. Uh, I want to. I want to maybe uh, offer a concluding thought. There's a paradox about our conversation, and the paradox is that uh, I don't think any of us is is speaking from a major city, and m- many of the world's most uh, uh, famous universities uh, were located by design far from the cities. Uh, I think of my own beloved Oxford, of Cambridge, of the other Cambridge, Massachusetts, where you are, uh, Ed, and 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 Stanford is is another of these universities, carefully located in in what was farmland. Uh, so, how do we reconcile the, the the paradox? We keep saying that cities are vital for all this intellectual creativity, but but for some reason, most of the great universities, Chicago being a notable exception, aren't in big cities. Let me challenge
1: that. That, that. that was set up when um, population growth, the death rate in cities was so high that uh, you know they only grew in population when more people moved in than died there. Cities were just horrible places to live. So they were, they were set up as bucolic places where you could actually survive. And now universities located out in the country are doing terribly. Uh, students want to go to Columbia, NYU, uh, now Stanford counts as, as city, but the ones located out in in beautiful countryside are just—they have no students. No one wants to go there anymore. Well, and, there's, and there are
3: exceptions the, to that. I would say I would say Mr. Jefferson's University in Charlottesville, for example. And I think we are talking a little bit. Uh, and Neil's alluding to this tension between sort of a Hamiltonian vision, uh, you know, of of, uh, of 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 successful American cities, uh, and a Jeffersonian, you know, vision of of the American agrarian ideal. But uh, and I think you still see those tensions today.
4: Let me throw out Daniel Patrick Moynihan's famous quip that if you want to build a great city, build two world-class universities and wait 50 years. Uh, Most of the places that Neil has mentioned are places that have developed great urban agglomerations around them, even though they were originally bucolic, including, of course, Stanford, which was, you know, a a ranch and is now the center of one of the great sort of, you know, maybe it's car-based, but one of the great urban agglomerations of the world. So okay. The obvious I wanna...
2: solution is build a new university in a state other than California and uh, and see what happens. And make not... it a
1: serious university that is devoted to the actual advancement of knowledge that's useful to people.
2: <laughs> okay. I'd like to
0: wind down the conversation. I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on this. Ed, you go first. Uh, Triumph of the city. You uh, suggest that cities are the avenue for making us richer, smarter, greener, healthier, and happier. Uh, I'll grant you the first three, richer, smarter, and greener. As we look to the future, since we like to look forward on fellows all the time, tell us how cities are going to make us healthier and happier in the future if, as Neil suggests, pandemics are more the norm. Uh, the,
4: the, there's no question that there are demons that come with density. Uh, there, The congestion of city streets, there's the facilitation of crime, there are high housing crime cause but the most terrible of the demons of density is indeed contagious disease and Mm -hmm. it is an old companion uh, documented at least since Thucydides wrote about the plague of Athens but quite possibly plagues killed the bronze uh, age civilizations of of, uh, uh, the Mediterranean as well Um, so anytime you have people who are connected both globally right, through cities of the nodes for global transport and locally, right, sit, play can cross uh, people. And that is, that is a real issue. Now we had a blessed century from 1919 to 2019 when that didn't rage, but it is indeed uh, a possibility. Mm-hmm. I am optimistic enough that I believe that we will actually face this existential threat to to urban life and actually do the investments that we need to with the help of, you know, the amazing things that have happened in in vaccines to make that possible. But I admit that I accept that Neil's darker prognosis is also a possibility. Uh, But you're not going to stop me from being optimistic both about life and about cities. Now, in happiness, I think the main the point here is that, you know, for billions of people throughout the world, unlike Neil social isolation has been some form of hell, right? That in fact, the world is filled, America is filled with millions of people, millions of teenagers who've been forced to grow up and accept the responsibilities and stress of being older without any of the freedom, without any of the social connection, the social ties. And I think that you know, cities have been enabling us to find pleasure and do miraculous things working together for thousands of years since Socrates and Plato bickered on an Athenian street corner. And the age of urban miracles is not over.
3: Well, I hope cities become a place to help, you know, really uh, pragmatism, triumph over sort of this, the ideological, you know, movements that we've seen and, and the orthodoxy, you know, associated with, you know, the far right and the far left and, and stressing you know, what's different about us. And, and I hope that cities because they do bring people together Will foster common understanding across different communities of of Americans and restore confidence in in who we are as a people and in our democratic processes and institutions. Uh, I think we all ought to demand more from our leadership. And I think the greatest promise is at the local level, where people want better education for their children. They want better, better services so that they can live more comfortably and 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 they all ultimately want to build a better future for their children and grandchildren. So cities should be a place where, where, where you can attain uh, th- those goals. And and uh, and I think we ought to demand that our leaders put policies in place uh, that, that allow Americans to, to achieve those goals.
1: I'll, I'll add some lessons that I've learned from Ed Glazer over the years, or at least I'll credit you with. Far from uh, demons of density, density is wonderful for all sorts of things there, of course. Uh, people seem to be, for 10,000 years, they've been more productive in cities. Ideas have come from cities. Civilization comes from civitas, live uh, in cities. Um, cities have, can. there's increasing returns to scale. So the public goods, whether provided by government or by businesses, uh, tend to be in cities. Cities are green, something we haven't talked about. The best thing for the planet is for people to live in apartment buildings and walk to work and leave the countryside alone. Uh, <clears throat> cities, however, uh, the locations of current cities, we, we talked a little bit about that. Locations of current cities make no sense. Locations of current cities are just happenstance. Um, I learned from Ed, most of the uh, East Coast cities are on the fall line where it was uh, easy to make a mill or the highest point that you could bring a ship up uh, a river. None of that matters anymore. In fact, I think most of the, if we were to resettle the U.S. and it were to be settled by, well, uh, invaded by Japanese and Chinese, the whole East Coast would be completely unsettled. We'd, we'd all in the west coast and a lot of Maine would be completely uh, just woods right now. San Francisco, why is San Francisco where it is? Because it was a good sailing ship port in 1850. The port moved to Oakland and there is no reason for San Francisco, once the railroad came in and stopped in Oakland, there's no reason for San Francisco to be there. It just turned, it's got a capital stock (laughs) and the point, it needs to reinvent itself. Uh, every city that is successful now is not doing what it did 50 years ago. And it's not doing the reason for it being where it was. Um, and reinventing yourself is hard. This is the place where all the standard market economics is a little bit of a problem because the young people go there because the bars and restaurants go there and the bars and restaurants are there because the young people are there and the tech companies are there because the young people want to be there. And we kind of get everyone to move to the same place at the same time. And if it's too, too bad, we're all going to pick up and go to Austin. So the, the process of reinvention um, has to happen. Reinvention coordination uh, has to happen. And um, so
0: which cities, I think, remains the, uh, the important question. Okay, Neil, who apparently doesn't miss his colleagues as much as they miss him.
2: Well, I get to see them via Zoom. And as we began the conversation by observing, it's pretty much as good if you know someone well. I grew up in a, a very rough city, Glasgow, which went through some very tough times Uh, When I was a kid, you've read Hillbilly Elegy, perhaps. Well, we did all that long before J.D. Vance was born. And there's one thing I I learned, uh, which we haven't talked about. And that is the problem that cities are very anti-conservative places. Cities are where socialism tends to breed. And we complacently look forward to a time when ever more of the population are in cities. Well, I tell you what that will mean politically, my friends. The decline of the countryside and of the small town and the rise of the metropolis uh, means an inexorable move to the left politically. And that's something that uh, I think my colleagues are giving too little attention to. Last thought, bring us back to, to the Chinese city. If there are recurrent pandemics, then there will be strong incentives, even in the West, to create systems of surveillance. Uh, We talk about contact tracing often on this show, For an authoritarian government, nothing could be better than a really efficient system of digital contact tracing because then you'll be able to know not only where everybody is, but who they're with. So I think we have two real things to worry about as the world becomes ever more urban. One is that it goes ever further to the left and the other is that it becomes ever more authoritarian. I'll stick to the countryside, thanks very much.
0: Ed Glazer, I have to give you the final uh, word here. And the final word is a thought about Glasgow.
2: So I was just saying,
4: Glasgow, Neil, is the only place where I've ever seen a pub fight where someone literally took a chair and struck another person over the back with it. So, so I I can confirm that <laughs> Glasgow is can be a rough place occasionally. So. Uh,
2: that's because the table was too heavy to lift, I presume. <laughs> and- <laughs> Okay, gentlemen,
0: we're going to leave it off at that. Uh, thanks for a lively conversation. We could keep going on. This this is a great topic. And and maybe we'll have you on a future show and pick up where we left off. We'd love to this have is, you
4: This that. is fabulous fun. Thank, thank you so much for, for including me.
0: So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back next week with a new episode, a new conversation. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our guest today, Ed Glaser. We wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy. And we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week you. <laughs>